Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, listener. I'm so glad you're here. Too often, we are lost among the fog unable to find our way. But I will help you follow the thread. Eleven stories, one moment. Today's entry, Last, by William Shun. Performed by Sarah Drew. Flight 008 is brought to you in partnership with XPRIZE. At 4.58 a.m. on June 28, 2020, the passengers on board ANA Flight 008, en route from Tokyo to San Francisco, are cruising at an altitude of 37,000 feet, approximately 1,500 nautical miles off the west coast of the United States. A small bump, otherwise noted as a barely perceptible bout of turbulence, passes Flight 008 through a temporary wrinkle in the local region of space-time. What these passengers will soon find out as they descend into SFO is that the wrinkle has transported them 20 years into the future, and the year is now 2040. This is the story of the passenger in seat 42E. Scene 1. Interior, ANA Flight 008. 10.51 a.m. Yumiko Hall was last to understand what all the commotion was about. Minor mid-Pacific turbulence had kept her from sleeping earlier in the flight, but exhausted dreams had at some point stolen over her. Visions of her mother crumbling to dust gave way in a smash cut to the bleary reality of her middle seat in the middle row at the very back of the plane. They were on the ground at SFO, breaking hard. Despite the chiding of the crew, passengers were standing in the aisles, hunched, peering out the windows, pointing, chattering. She shivered and stretched in her seat, blinking away sleep. She reached into the seat back pocket for her phone almost reflexively and switched it out of airplane mode. She ached to be home with Kasim, and especially little Akiko, an ache as deep as the ocean she had just crossed, as specific as a shoe that refuses to be broken in. Akiko would be eight days old today, which meant that Yumiko had now missed 37.5% of her daughter's young life. If she could have blinked herself home immediately, she would have. She never enjoyed the commute home from the airport, but today she dreaded it. Today... She was bringing home a share of her mother's ashes. Yumiko checked her phone. No signal yet. She was anxious for an update from Kasim, eager to let him know she'd be home soon, hungry for the sound of his voice. 
She stared at the screen, willing it to connect, heedless of the increasing babble around her. The plane had stopped. The seatbelt sign was off. The mass of passengers strained toward the exits. Yumiko reached for her backpack beneath the seat in front of her before remembering yet again that she'd been forced to check it at Narita. She felt unmoored without the weight of the lead-lined canister on her back, a balloon that might drift away and never come back to Earth. She felt a strange gulf opening between her and her fellow travelers. They knew something she didn't. She should have cared about that, but she didn't. Yumiko felt the emptiness of the cabin expanding behind her as she shuffled slowly ahead. She was last. Last again. To distract herself, she concentrated on how she would frame herself. Bereaved child, new mother, if this were a scene in a movie. Camera there, among those seats to the fore, herself in shallow focus, partially eclipsed by the blurry passengers ahead, her face dark and indistinct against the brilliant light from the windows. A strong woman. A portrait of grief and determination. No. That would be a lie. A cliché and a lie. She wasn't strong. Her mother was the strong one. At last, passing through the door of the plane, she glanced at her phone. Still no signal. Something was wrong. It wasn't until she emerged from the jetway into an unfamiliar arrival lounge that she began to see how wrong things were. Scene 6. Exterior, San Francisco International Airport, 12.32 p.m. Bereft, Yumiko stumbled out from the terminal into the warm light of a sun just past its zenith. A sun in the year 2040. The glasses that sat awkwardly on her face darkened against the glare. A blinking green target appeared in her vision, superimposed over a tiny yellow car that was pulling silently up to the curb. A line of green text announced... Your personal transport has arrived. Happy people chatted around her in a dozen languages as she ducked into the car. Could any of them have looked at her and guessed that what was 20 years for them had been only three whirlwind days for her? That she had no idea how or where to find her husband and daughter? Yumiko was not a woman given to crying or self-pity. But when just off the plane, the reality of her situation had become irrefutably clear, she had fled to the nearest restroom and lost track of time sobbing in one of the paperless stalls. She pulled herself together at the mirror, hands braced on the edge of the sink, composing a shot in her mind with the camera hovering somewhere behind her left shoulder. One step at a time, she told her reflection same way she'd gotten through four films and an arduous pregnancy. Take this, one step at a time. By the time she cleared passport control, her backpack was the last item left on the ANA-008 luggage carousel. Her fellow passengers were nowhere to be found. Her credit and debit cards, as she soon discovered, were useless, and the two 5,000 yen notes on her person yielded less than $40 at the currency exchange. It was in panic and desperation that she entered the traveler's aid office, where one Miss Fitter had arranged this. Hello, Yumiko Hall, said the car, in the plummy voice of some vaguely British actress. There were two seats inside, one of which folded flat to make room for Yumiko's backpack, but no driver. Welcome to Safe Francisco Transit, a transportation solution in association with the San Francisco Department of Human Services. 
I am fully electric and powered entirely by renewable energy sources. I see that your destination will be the Willie Brown Towers in Bayview, San Francisco. Is this correct? Um, as far as I know? Very good. Please fasten your safety belt so we can begin. The moment she snapped the buckle together, the car swung smoothly away from the curb. Yumiko caught her breath as they merged into a stream of vehicles in a maneuver that seemed destined to result in a collision. Our travel time will be approximately 14 minutes. Yumiko gaped. Are you serious? Bayview in 14 minutes? Traffic conditions are optimal at this time. A riot of colors flooded Yumiko's vision, whirling and resolving into the patchwork of a three-dimensional map. Her stomach lurched as her viewpoint swooped in over the field of geometric shapes, finally matching speed with a yellow ball that rolled like a blood cell down a silver artery in perfect sync with its neighbors. As you can see... Yumiko ripped the glasses from her face and leaned back in her seat, breathing hard. Miss Fitter could not have been more kind or accommodating, setting up this ride, temporary shelter, and even a limited debit chip allowance... But she had cautioned that the augmented reality glasses would be disorienting at first. Now Yumiko massaged the bridge of her nose and concentrated on keeping the meager contents of her stomach where they were. Miss Hall, are you all right? Your pulse is elevated. Do you require assistance? I'll be fine. She rubbed the canvas surface of the backpack beside her, this artifact from 2020 that now contained, in addition to her mother's ashes, a keychain with her temporary debit identity chip and an emergency safety beacon, both paired with her glasses. What were Kasim and little Akiko doing now, in this strangely retooled future world? Was he still writing code for high-speed trading systems, or had he moved on to something shinier? And what had she grown up to become? Yumiko risked opening her eyes again, needing a step back from the precipice of despair. The car was traveling north on 101, but a 101 surfaced in some lustrous black material that almost seemed to swallow the sunlight. The vehicles around them, mostly carrying one or two passengers, but some entirely empty, rolled silently along the road, occasionally trading lanes in some unpredictable yet coordinated dance, while for the most part maintaining identical speeds and separation. To either side, she saw the familiar sprawl of office parks, but nearly every roof was topped with solar panels and vertical wind turbines and beds of grass or flowers. Interspersed among the structures, particularly thickly to the east along the edge of the brilliant bay, were towering turbines that spun on a vertical axis like spiraling silver ribbons of DNA. There were also mysterious arrays of thin black spires whose purpose Yumiko couldn't begin to guess. What are the tall black things over by the water? Those are carbon sequestration units, colloquially known as scrubbers. They are clad with a responsive piezoelectric nanolayer that captures molecules of carbon dioxide and methane from the moving air. Ionization around each unit also helps funnel more of these greenhouse gases in toward the cladding. The carbon is then deposited underground, where it can be repurposed into building materials or put into other varied uses. The Willie Brown Towers, in fact, are constructed from that very sequestered carbon. Yumiko pictured herself in a high angle shot, camera tracking with the car and peering down at her upturned face as she took in all the wonders around her. How difficult a shot would that be to pull off in the here and now? 
Would filmmaking even still be a viable path for her? If so, then maybe she could find a way to put across how stupendous and terrifying a place this was to a wandering stranger like her. She found herself wanting to share her amazement with Kasim, But then she remembered, sadly, that all this change would have crept up on him gradually, and that he would no doubt find it utterly banal. Can you place a phone call for me? I can request a connection for you, yes. If, that is, the target's contact information is publicly accessible. Yumiko tried to hold on to hope. The name is Kasim L. Hall? I show four Kasim Halls in the Bay Area, but none with that middle initial. In the 51 states, I see a total of 18 exact accessible matches. I can send profile photos to your glasses, if you like. Yumiko sighed, blinking hard. Why not cut out the middleman? Is it possible to make a detour on the way to Bayview? Within reason. My time allotment on this assignment skews to the generous side, but is not unlimited. It shouldn't be too far out of your way. Yumiko recited the address of a house on Winfield Street in Bernal Heights. Yes, that's manageable. We can be there in approximately 17 minutes. Traffic was cooperative, which Yumiko was beginning to think might be a new defining characteristic of traffic. Yumiko's heart pounded when she first caught sight of Sutro Tower atop its hill, so close to her home, now ringed by an entourage of turbines and scrubbers and other arcane structures. They in fact made it to Winfield Street in fifteen and a half minutes, her nerves keying tighter with every curve and corner. To the west, high above the houses, she could see the ridge that split the city. Fog massed along its top like cream on the lip of a cup, poised at any moment to spill down the hillside. The car dropped her off in front of the neat, narrow Edwardian and began circling the block as she mounted the front steps. The house, once vibrant purple, was now painted robin's egg blue, but otherwise was still as well-maintained as when she'd left it three days earlier. The only other obvious difference was the array of small solar panels on the roof. Yumiko waved away a cloud of gnats that coalesced around her head. She reached out to ring the bell but froze. She had noticed the brass plate on the door which read, B.L. and C.J. Wisniewski. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the year 2072, as our world reels from climate chaos... There is one beacon of hope, Pura, a sanctuary amidst the devastation, safeguarding its inhabitants from the relentless onslaught of environmental disasters. Meet Demetria Lopez, the face of Pura's pristine image, but beneath the facade lies a chilling truth. When Demetria uncovers a secret that could shatter everything Pura stands for, she faces a choice. Loyalty or truth? Preservation or revelation? From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death comes an electrifying new series, The Last City, starring the talents of Rhea Seahorn, Jenny Tirado, and Maury Sterling, prepare for a gripping tale of intrigue and moral reckoning. Subscribe to The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you listen to podcasts. And for an exclusive experience, join Wondery Plus to binge all episodes early and ad-free. The future of Pura awaits.
Scene 9. Exterior Silver Terrace, San Francisco, 2.20 p.m. Walking southeast on Palau Avenue, her belly full and warm after she'd run across an unexpected okonomiyaki shop, Yumiko prickled at the eeriness of it all. To her, this neighborhood had always seemed a little barren, with its low houses butting the sidewalk, its smattering of trees, its sere patches of grass. But now this long, rolling street was swaddled in green, from the trees that lined the sidewalk to the gardens thriving in what used to be driveways and alleys to the vines twining down from the many roofs. The sidewalk was cool and shady despite the fierce afternoon sun. The only sounds were the whispering of leaves and the palavar of birds pierced by the occasional zinger from a contrary parrot. Even the omnipresent cars passed as silently as monks. It felt to Yumiko like a thousand years had passed, not just twenty. But what struck her most poignantly was the smell. The air quality had been fine for as long as she'd lived in San Francisco, but now, now the smell was actively fresh. An improbable combination of sea air, cornfields, orange blossoms, and loam. It was as if she had wandered into some limbo land woven from the warp of her Hakone childhood and the weft of an American dream that had never quite been hers. It made her ache for the mother she had always known and for the daughter she had only just met. A park with a small playground opened up to Yumiko's right. Weary, she removed her heavy backpack and took a seat on a bench, at the opposite end from a young woman in glasses and a pale blue hijab. Yumiko watched a group of half a dozen small children clamor on a jungle gym, while in the flower bed beside her, artificial bees enameled in white and silver stole like cat burglars in and out of columbine blossoms. The woman in the hijab said something in a language Yumiko didn't recognize. Yumiko turned her head. The woman was looking at her with eyebrows raised, smiling and tapping her glasses. The frames cast a bluish light around her eyes. After a moment, Yumiko understood the woman's pantomimed question. She removed her own glasses from a pocket of her backpack and put them back on. The woman spoke again, gesturing at the jungle gym. A line of text, subtitles for real life, appeared in Yumiko's vision. Do you have children? Yumiko pressed a fist to her mouth. Her heart felt like it would burst. In Japanese, she said, I left my baby behind, and felt her face begin to crumble. The woman's eyes widened, and Yumiko sucked in a shuddering breath, ready to wave off any sympathy or concern. The woman pointed at Yumiko's head and spoke again, My God, are you famous? Yumiko realized the air around her was again swarming with gnats. She stood up fast, swatting at them. What are they? Midge cams. This cloud says it's from TMZ. She heard those initials clearly enough, despite the language gulf. I'm not famous, she said. I'm just lost. The swarm was already disappearing as Yumiko scooped up her backpack and hurried on her way. She concentrated on imagining what kinds of shots she could achieve with tiny cameras like those. One step at a time. Scene 13. Interior, Brown Towers, Structure 6, Level 20, 7.58 p.m. That evening, Yumiko shrugged her backpack on, locked her temporary pod, and stepped into the claustrophobic elevator. From her high window, she had seen the fog rolling in across the complex, gilded by the waning sun, while rooftop solar collectors on stalks folded their panels together like flowers going to sleep. She wanted to be down below, out of the light. 
She wanted to lose herself in the fog and forget. The pod itself was a marvel of efficiency. Everything she could have needed within a few steps of everything else. Each pod was fabricated locally, fully furnished, then slotted into place like a puzzle piece around a central core in the skeleton of the building. Pods could be moved intact, or even shipped to another city if someone didn't want to go to the trouble of packing all their belongings. What's more, she'd already met some of her neighbors. A family of three refugees from the war in Venezuela, and they were lovely, generous people. And the whole complex was built on the decontaminated remains of a naval shipyard at Hunter's Point, which should have kindled in her at least some pride on behalf of her adopted city. But as Yumiko made her way out onto the foggy commons, the structure at her back felt more like a looming dreadnought than a miracle of science. It was at the built-in computer terminal in the kitchen niche that she had finally found a couple of recent news articles referencing her husband. A team he led had won an X-Prize in neuromorphic computing for work on predictive intelligences designed to guide large-scale climate engineering projects. He had traveled to the ceremony from his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he lived with his wife of 12 years, Tahira. There was no question it was him. In the photos, he was older, graying, a little rounder in the face. But he was smiling that same dazzling smile she had fallen in love with when they were insecure young students at San Francisco State, both far from home. She wanted to send him a message, but she was too afraid to do it. Yumiko no longer felt like a character in a movie. Now she felt like a woman marooned at the end of the world. Tendrils of fog snaked around her like a winding shroud as she walked. She shivered in the thick flannel hoodie she had found waiting for her in the pod's closet. She had her glasses on because she could no longer bear to look at this world through naked eyes. Oksan, Yumiko said quietly, addressing the canister on her back. She was trying to imagine her mother walking beside her, but all she could picture was performing katsuage the previous day. She and her younger brother in black kimono, standing across from each other over their mother's cremated remains, picking through the ash with chopsticks and depositing chunks of bone in a stone urn. If only she had stayed in Hakone for another day of mourning. If only she had done what her conscience or her mother's spirit had told her to. Oksan, why did you have to go? A glowing red target appeared suddenly in her vision, with a dot blinking near the circumference at its lower right quadrant. A message flashed beside it. It is possible you are being followed. Alert police and neighbors. Blink three times for yes. She remembered the key ring in the pocket of the hoodie. She stopped and turned slowly until the dot on the target was directly above the bullseye moving closer. Yumiko squinted past it into the fog. Another message flashed. Do you require assistance? Blink three times for yes. A shadow emerged from the fog, a slight figure. Yumiko took off the glasses and put them in her pocket. Hello? The figure came closer, resolving itself into a girl. No, not a girl, a young woman. Straight black hair and a purple San Francisco State sweatshirt, pleading look on her face. It was like staring into a mirror across time. Are you... are you my mother? Yumiko's breath hitched. Akiko. I assumed they surged together. I thought you were dead. The girl sobbed against her chest. Yumiko stroked her hair. She could barely speak. I left you three days ago. I'm so sorry. You were too little to come. 
Your hollow was everywhere this afternoon, but I was the last one to hear. I was last. Oh, my God. My baby. My little girl. I missed everything. Everything. Mommy. You don't have to miss anything else. The two young women clung to each other in the gathering fog, watched over perhaps by a ghost. All Yumiko wanted was for the moment to last. Subscribe, and I promise when stepping into a new future, you will not be last. This story was written by William Shun, performed by Sarah Drew. This episode was directed and produced by Mark Holden, edited by Seth Alansky, and designed by Neil Wogenson and Seth Alansky at the Invisible Studios. I hope you enjoyed our special anthology season. A single moment, a thousand futures. Stay tuned for our next season, in which we bring you more stories from premier authors in the science fiction field, performed by actors of unparalleled skill. I will see you soon. Season 2 of Dust is brought to you in partnership with XPRIZE, designing and operating multi-million dollar global competitions to accelerate the development of technological breakthroughs that benefit humanity. Flight 008 is co-produced with Eric Desatnik. Dust is produced by Stephen Michael and Margaret Laney and executive produced by Floris Bauer, Van Toffler and Eric Bromberg at Gunpowder and Sky. Dust is associate produced by Sarah Newton. The producers wish to thank Helen Sadler, Jake McCarty and Russ Nickel. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.